I had two follow-up meetings with management. I didn't trust them, so I went to the meetings with a hidden tape recorder. Eventually, they fired me, and I sued them. It took three years for the case to go to trial, and it cost me 350,000 pounds in legal expenses. If I had lost the case, it would have financially wiped me out. We went to court and won the case hands down. Did you use your recordings in the trial? Oh, yes, and they were extremely useful. We furnished Nomura with the tape transcripts, but they still weren't prepared. At one point in the trial, one of their witnesses testified regarding to some conversation. The judge said, there is a transcript, show me where he said that. He answered, it's not there. The judge said, I'll cross out that section of your statement. What about the next section? Would you like me to cross that out as well? The tape really helped me in terms of credibility because I had told the absolute truth while they had lied. I got 1.35 million pounds, which was equal to 15% of my profits. It should have been 20%. When I look back, even though I won the case, it was a bad decision to sue. Why is that? If I had spent the time it took for the litigation to drag out pursuing my own business, I would have made multiples of the 1.35 million pound settlement. It was a bad trade. What did you do in those intervening years? I literally built a house. I dug my own foundation. I did most of the work myself. I hired a builder to help with the things I couldn't do on my own. What else occupied you during those three years besides building your own house? I had my court case and I was building a house that occupied all my time. Did you have any plans about what you were eventually going to do? I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was finished with markets in the city. I was never going back. Why? You had done very well in the markets. Because I had such a terrible experience with people, the company politics, people lying. In my view, all I had ever done for any of my employers was make money, and yet I didn't have much money. Either I didn't get paid properly, or even when I had a contract, I got screwed on that. I found the whole experience to be very discouraging. How do you go from loving the markets, like it was a video game you were being paid to play, to not even wanting to get a trading job? That's an interesting question, isn't it? In 1986, I had gone to the city to make some money until I figured out what I wanted to do. I never worked it out. I still haven't worked it out. Apparently, at some point, you did get back into the markets. How did that occur? It was a bit of coincidence. I was going on a fishing trip in Venezuela with an old buddy from NatWest. I traveled via New York, and while I was there, I spoke to an old broker contact who advised me to speak to First New York Securities. I met with the two guys who had set up the business. Both of them at the time were in their 60s. They wanted me to come to work for First New York Securities for a fixed percentage of the profits I made. Initially, I was reluctant because of all the negative experiences I had, but eventually they convinced me to come to New York for a few months to give it a try. After I had been there for a few months, the guy in charge said to me, We have been talking about you. We decided you were a player. I'm thinking, here it comes. I'm going to get screwed now. He continued, We owe you a lot of money, but you have never mentioned it. I said, If I thought I needed a contract, I wouldn't be here. If you're telling me that I need one, I'll just go now and you can just keep the money. Then in my poor attempt at humor, I said, and I'm sure that if I fell under a bus, you would give money to my kids. Later that day, two partners independently approached me with the same basic assurance. One of them said, I want to assure you that if anything ever happened to you, I would personally make sure your family got the money. Clark is visibly moved by this recollection. You sound emotional about it even to this day. 
I'm still getting emotional about it now because it was the first time that anyone had said anything like that to me. It really, really touched me. What did they mean when they called you a player? Because they owed me money and I hadn't been asking where my money was. Since I hadn't mentioned it, they brought it up. What kind of trading were you doing? I was doing directional risk arbitrage. What does that mean? I might do the risk arbitrage, or I might not hedge, or I might go long both sides. It depended on the situation. I was basically trading the companies in a merger event. When did you start your current fund, and what happened to your relationship with First New York Securities? I set up my own asset management business in the UK and started an event-driven fund in 2001. I continued to manage First New York Securities money peri passu alongside with the fund, and I still do. I was also a de facto advisor to First New York Securities, but with my fund having grown to near $1 billion, I didn't want to maintain that commitment. I met with the head of the firm in New York, and I told him I was too busy with my own fund to maintain my advisory role with First New York Securities. I said, I will leave you with one bit of parting advice. You are too old. You're killing your own business. Get out. He said, I think you are right. How did you think he was killing the business? Like any entrepreneur who starts a business, he was holding on too tight. They have been doing proprietary trading for 25 years and have never had a losing year. Despite that track record, they have missed the entire growth in asset management. They have had no hedge fund business through the entire hedge fund era. He was getting too old to take risks, and he admitted it himself. In the end, I agreed to become a managing member of First New York Securities. The firm is very inefficiently run and has no technology. We need to make it more efficient and bring it into the 21st century. We need to start managing outside money and create a more valuable business. That is the plan. What are your long-term goals? I am still waiting to figure out what it is I want to do when I grow up. I am still waiting for the revelation. In some ways, it is quite depressing. I don't understand. You have been very successful. But what have I achieved? I haven't built anything. How do you measure success? If it's monetary, by any reasonable definition, you have been more than successful. If it is building a business, again by reasonable definition, you have been successful. You are not going to invent a cure for cancer. If you want to impact the world, I guess you could give money away. I give money away, that's what I do. I'm still here because I couldn't figure out anything better to do at the time. It still feels like I'm waiting to work out what I should be doing. Don't you feel that trading is what you were born to do? Well, no. I have a view, and maybe it's a bit egotistical, that I can do anything I want to do. I'll go to the city to get a job as a trader. I will build a house. I'll take on a bank in litigation. I'll start a hedge fund. If that's your perspective, then do whatever you want to do. That's the problem. You don't know what you want to do. No, but I can tell you that running a fund doesn't make me happy. I enjoy it, but I used to enjoy it a lot more than I do now. Why is that? Because it was a lot less complicated. I was just trading. Now it's running a business. You're still searching for something. Yes, there is still a hole there. I'm searching to be satisfied by something. Let me tell you the trouble with trading. There is no career in trading. You are only as good as your last trade, and that is it. You build nothing. You just trade. The day you stop trading, it's gone. So what you have spent doing for X hours every working day of your life has ended, and there's nothing left to show for it except for money. 
You have to keep trading because you don't want to stop and look back. Because what have you done? You have built nothing. You have achieved nothing. You get to the end of it and look back and wonder, what have I accomplished? I have a very nihilistic view of it, but that is the way I feel. I'm still back at that point when I'm a 17-year-old trying to decide what I want to do. But somewhere along the line you went from having joy in this business to feeling unsatisfied. Do you know what caused that transition? I'm not sure, but it is probably from the point that I decided I was going to grow a business instead of just trading. That almost sounds like it was when you started the hedge fund. It probably was. The joy ended. Being a trader was fun, and you could walk away. But when you have a business, you can't walk away. So it becomes a prison in some ways, whereas being a trader was very free. Ironically, you've taken on more business responsibility by becoming a managing member of First New York Securities. Where's the rationale in that? The rationale is that there is a trade to be done. The trade is to fix the company? Yes, the trade is to fix the company, be involved for a period and get much more value for it. It's all very rational. I try to do rational things. Sometimes you make rational decisions every step of the way and yet end up in a place that is very far from where you want to be. When I first came to New York Securities, I said, I don't want to manage anything, I just want to trade. And here we are. It's very ironic. You said you didn't want to manage anything, and you ended up helping manage the company. Yes, it is. I also constantly think that I am about to be found out, which is another personal driver. What do you mean by found out? A number of times in my career I have thought that maybe I have just been lucky. Maybe I don't really know what I am doing, and I have just bluffed my way through. Maybe I have just found a few trades that work, but I won't find any more trades that work, and I will be found out. I had overrun my meeting time allotment, and Clark had to leave for another meeting. We decided that we would finish the interview on one of his trips to New York. Several months later, I met with Clark at First New York Securities. After some casual conversation, he began talking about trading before I even asked a question. As a trader, you have to be honest with yourself. I have met many traders who have laid out a strategy on how they will be scaled-down buyers. I'll buy some at eight, and if it goes down, I will add seven, six, and five. But if you are the type of person who will be puking his guts out if it goes to seven, let alone to six or lower, you shouldn't be buying at all at eight, or if you do, it should be 25% of the size. You have to train yourself to trade at a smaller size so that you trade within your emotional capacity. If you are really, really excited about a trade and swing the bat in a big way, and ten minutes later the market moves against you, but you are the type of person who doesn't handle that type of volatility well, you will end up cutting your position and losing money, even if the trade was ultimately a big winner. We see this behavior in traders all the time. It is the size of the position you put on rather than the price which you put it on that determines your ability to keep the position. Your message, then, is that although traders focus almost entirely on where to enter a trade, in reality the entry size is more important than the entry price, because if the size is right, you are much more likely to stay with a winning trade. One of the first lessons my first boss taught me was that price is irrelevant. It is all about controlling the size of your position. On a related point, liquidity is also very important. That is why when a merger deal breaks, we cut it straight away because you get a pocket of liquidity. It may be at a much lower level, but at least you have the liquidity. If you wait, the liquidity can dry up, and you will be left with an outsized position in what has become a directional trade. Getting the size of a position wrong is a perfect example of a common trader mistake. 
What other mistakes have you seen traders typically make in the course of your career? One of the things we have seen inside First New York Securities many times is traders coming from an information-rich environment, such as a big investment bank, to a trading house and finding that the information flow is all gone. It is like trading in a vacuum for them. We have seen guys with incredibly strong reputations who have been trading actively for years in big size, and when they come here, they find they can't make any money, and maybe they even lose a little bit. It becomes a downward spiral. They trade smaller and smaller, and every dollar they lose becomes emotionally more and more important to them. They lose all perspective. Many of these traders never had a plan. They just responded to the stimuli around them. I tell them that they need to replace the information flow they previously had. I advise them to draw up a list of 20 contacts and phone them every day. Does that work? Well, they don't take the advice. What other advice do you give them? I have been through similar situations myself. I found it was critical to find things to involve yourself in. It is a very good thing to be busy when you are a prop trader because you don't want to have too much time to stare at the screen, particularly if your style of trading is to have only a limited number of positions on at one time. Once you have your positions on and are waiting for the market to do what it needs to do, what are you going to do in the interim? Coming back again to the investment bank world, they have meetings and all sorts of stuff going on on that suck-up time. Traders would all complain about the waste of time, but what it actually meant was that it limited the amount of time they were in front of their screen staring at their positions. You don't want to be sitting in front of your screen and staring at market prices for 12 hours a day. Staring at the price is not going to tell you very much. You will start to overprocess and overtrade. I have found that one of the common denominators among successful traders is patience, particularly in regards to staying with good trades long enough. And that is true regardless of the time frame, even day traders. I assume the more time you spend staring at the screen, the less patience you will have. You will have less patience, and if you are in a negative loop, every down tick cuts you. You will feel physical pain with every tick the market goes against you. It sounds like you have had that experience. I have had several occasions in my career where I sat with my head in my hands thinking, I am never going to make a penny again. I am crap. I have always been crap. I have just been found out. Even though you have made money for ten years, you can still get into that mindset. You had a knack for trading, but now it is gone. You lost it. I lost it. I was never that good. It was just the market. Now the market has changed, and I don't know what to do. It's a horrible, horrible feeling. When you do get into that type of phase, what do you do? I have learned over the years that when you get into that mode, don't do anything. Discipline yourself to not trade for two weeks or whatever time period you choose. Take a holiday. Does that work? Oh yeah, as long as you don't have any positions on when you go. You need to get out of everything. Then go away and forget about it. Now that takes time because what you will do for the first few days is torture yourself. I could have done this. I could have done that. But for me, after a few days, I can let it go. Once you let go, you can unwind. Then when you come back, you have to set rules. You need to be able to say that you won't trade for, say, two weeks. You'll see trades that you are itching to do, but you need to have all the discipline not to do them because clearly you are not in sync with the markets. Otherwise, you wouldn't be where you are. When you feel you are ready to begin trading and see a trade that you really like, trade a fraction of the size you would normally trade. At least half the time, the trade may go your way initially, but then it will go against you because all you may be experiencing is a feel for the next few ticks. At this point, the president of First New York Securities ushers in my son, who works at the firm, saying, I wanted to introduce a young man to you. 
I had arrived at just the last minute for my scheduled meeting with Clark, so I did not get a chance to say hello to my son first. We all chat for a few minutes, and they leave. Clark queries me a bit about my son, and describing the trading style he is gravitating toward, I mention that high volume is one of the things he looks for in trading setups. That is quite interesting because one of the things I did at Lehman when I was short on information was to filter for European stocks that had unusually large volume. Then I went through all the charts of those stocks to see if any were making interesting bottoms. I would then call my contacts and ask them what they knew about those specific stocks. That's how I started to find situations to trade. Volume is incredibly important. I have found it to be a very valuable indicator. And still do? Yes. If a stock has been bombed out and there is a sudden jump in volume, it doesn't mean you should buy it straight away because it can go quiet again. But clearly, somebody is there beginning to buy. Then you watch for signs that the stock is resilient on down days in the market, suggesting there is an underlying buying support for the stock, and you begin to nibble away at establishing a position. Sometimes the stock will then see a day where all of a sudden it just gaps up, and you trade to catch that gap. You have to do some fundamental work to find out what is going on because you don't want to end up buying a stock that is headed for zero. Volume is just a way of identifying potentially interesting situations. You talked earlier about advising traders on the need to call people. Can you think of examples where calling people led to information that was useful for trading? You need to be willing to call people to get information. You need to ask the next question. You never know what you will find out that will be useful. For example, there was a merger deal that had to be approved by the FCC, and nothing was happening. In the meantime, the spread kept widening and widening, and we were getting more concerned about the position. We kept calling the FCC over and over again until one time, by luck, we got the secretary of one of the commissioners who said, Oh, that... It's on his desk ready to be signed, but he is away fishing this week. Another time, we were on the phone with a banker regarding the funding for a deal. I kept asking him a question I knew he couldn't answer. I asked the same question in ten different ways, knowing full well that he couldn't tell me whether the funding was done or not. After the call, I said, sell it now. There were so many things that would have been perfectly reasonable for him to say, but he didn't. What could he have said? Well, he couldn't say the funding was done or that it wasn't done, but he could have said that it was a work in progress or that they were confident. What did he say? All he said to each question was, I can't answer that question. If you don't make the phone call, if you don't ask the next question, you will never know. Can you give me an example of a trade that illustrates your process? A good example is our trade in fiat in 2003. We made 20% in a month on that single transaction. At the time, the broad market was rallying sharply in a rebound from the preceding bear market. Fiat had a big rights issue. At the same time, Deutsche Bank had announced that they would be disposing of their industrial holdings, and fiat was one of their positions. Rather than exercise their rights, which would increase their positions, Deutsche Bank decided to sell their rights. You had a situation where the market was going up, and while fiat should have been going the same way, it was actually going down because of a big seller. And that seller was not driven by fundamentals, but rather by a desire to rebalance their portfolio to reduce industrial holdings and fiat was one of their positions. Rather than exercise their rights, which would increase their position, Deutsche Bank decided to sell their rights. You had a situation where the market was going up, and while fiat should have been going the same way, it was actually going down because of a big seller, 
and that seller was not driven by fundamentals, but rather by a desire to rebalance their portfolio to reduce industrial holdings. The rights were especially cheap because of the Deutsche Bank's selling. We bought the rights, which effectively gave us a cheap call. Buying the fiat rights was a trade where everything lined up. First, the market was very strong. Second, the stock was substantially underperforming the market and its sector for two technical reasons. There was a rights issue and a large seller for technical reasons that had nothing to do with the fundamentals. Third, the rights provided you with a way to put on a large position for a small capital outlay. Fourth, because Deutsche Bank was a large seller of rights and the stock was difficult to borrow, the rights were trading below their intrinsic value. What advice do you give to people who want to be traders? First, they need to make sure they understand their motivation. Not everyone who says they want to be a trader really does. Trading has this macho mystique. People will say they want to be a trader and won't admit to perhaps wanting to be an analyst, even if they would be happier as an analyst. They might even make more money as an analyst because they would be better at it. You have seen a lot of traders. What are the characteristics of traders who succeed? They all work hard. There is a first New York trader in New Zealand who trades international equities. He can't be awake 24 hours a day, but he seems to be. Nearly all the successful traders I have known are one-trick ponies. They do one thing, and they do it very well. When they stray from that single focus, it often ends in disaster. In the hedge fund world, you will see traders who do one thing very well, make a lot of money at it, and then think, this one thing is rather boring. I can do other things because I am a genius. So they start doing other things. You had a number of great macro traders decide to branch into multi-strategy funds. It didn't work too well in 2008 when they were all exposed. One well-known macro trader wrote to his investors in 2008 that he had made them money, but it was all the other managers in the fund trading an assortment of strategies who lost all the money. Well, you hired them. You gave them all the money. We have seen that again and again in hedge funds. Managers diversify away from their expertise because they have made a lot of money and think they can do anything. What is it about some traders that drive them away from what they do well to do things they may not do well? I think deep down inside they know they are one-trick ponies, and that one thing could end. But successful traders who are one-trick ponies, when that trick stops, they learn another trick. That is exactly what happens, but some traders will change while their one trick is still working and destroy it. You need to be a bit obsessive to do the same thing ten hours a day. People who are obsessive can become very good traders. Are there any other traits that distinguish the successful traders? Really good traders are also capable of changing their mind in an instant. They can be dogmatic in their opinion and then immediately change it. This market is going higher. It is absolutely going up. No, it's definitely going down. If you can't do that, you will get caught in a position and be wiped out. Can you think of a personal experience where you completely changed your mind in an instant? A perfect example was when Euro Disney was listed in the U.S. many years ago. It was already listed in Europe, but Blue Sky laws required a waiting period before it could be listed in the U.S. I built up this large position in anticipation of a burst of retail demand that would emerge when it was listed on the U.S. On the first day it became available to U.S. retail investors, we had buy orders for millions of shares. That morning, I was already very long, but I put in buy orders to get more long. The market gapped higher on the opening and started racing away on the upside. We weren't getting filled on anything because there was so little for sale. The market was moving up in gaps with very little volume. 
In an instant, I completely switched my orders and started selling whatever I could. What flipped you around? I recognized in a moment of clarity that if I had reached a fever pitch in trying to buy at any price, the moment the market turned, it would just head straight down. And I assume it went down quickly? It fell about 10% from that point that day, and it kept going down into the following days. Everyone had done the same thing. Everyone had come in long in anticipation of an influx of retail buy orders. Was there a catalyst for your sudden change in sentiment? Something clicked. I was hysterical. Before the 1987 crash, I was on a desk with experienced traders, and a rumor circulated that you had to buy this small stock called London and Overseas Freight. The stock had started the day at 10 pence, and I bought it at 12 pence. The stock kept going up all through the day, 13 pence, 14 pence, 15, 16 pence. The guys on the desk who hadn't bought couldn't stand the pain of not being in, and they got long. And the stock just kept going higher and higher. Finally, one trader who had not bought the stock was on the squawk box to the floor saying, Where is it now? The answer came back, It's at 22. I remember these words to this day. He said, I don't care what I have to pay, just get me in. He got filled at 23 pence. It never traded higher, and it closed the day at 12 pence. The stock eventually went to nothing. It was just a microcosm of hysteria. It might have been my recognition of the same type of hysteria in myself years later that triggered my about-face in Euro Disney. I may have even said to the broker, Just get me stock, just get me stock. And something clicked. I've been here before, I've seen this. What explains the extremely low volatility of your track record versus most other event-driven funds? You have to be able to cut your position. I'll never accept anybody saying they can't cut a position. How did you manage to completely sidestep downside volatility in 2007 and 2008? In 2007, we got rid of anything that was directional or long-dated and put almost all our money in short-duration risk arbitrage, deals that we felt were almost certain to close and that had very wide spreads because of the market volatility. The ability of these companies to close their transactions had not been degraded by what was happening in the world. The only risk I saw was that something might happen that would cause the prime brokers to change margin requirements, which would force us to liquidate. I thought the only way that would happen would be if there was some more major market distress. To hedge against this possibility, I bought out-of-the-money puts on the S&P and sold out-of-the-money calls to pay for the puts. If the market went sideways or up, we would do very well because of our core portfolio. If the market went down suddenly, we still felt our core portfolio would hold up, and the puts would provide protection against the change in margin requirements. In 2008, the world had changed. Volatility quadrupled. I decided we should trade a fraction of what we used to trade. Most people didn't do that and got blown up. Was there anything that triggered your cutting exposure? We had a good month and then another very good month and started the next month very strong. Then two days later we were down for the month and nothing had happened. I could just smell that we had to cut our positions. We took off 75% of our exposure. So you didn't gradually cut your exposure in 2008? Oh, no. I don't believe in this idea, we will sell 25% of our position and then think about it. Is gut feel important to trading? Absolutely. I have learned to trust my judgment. Gut feel is important, and you can trade off of it. But you need to have a set of rules that control your size and stop-loss points. What are the trading rules you live by? If you wake up thinking about a position, it's too big. 
Never stop asking questions. Speak to as many people as you can. Research every opposing opinion. When everything lines up, you need to swing for it because in those situations, even if you are wrong, you probably won't be wrong by that much. But if the position starts behaving in a way you don't understand, you need to cut it because then you clearly don't know what is going on. The market is telling you that you don't know. What is your philosophy about the markets? The market is not about facts. It's all about people's opinions and positions. Consequently, anything can be at any price, any time. Once you understand that, you realize that you need to have protective stops. Any final words? Your job as a trader is to make the line go from bottom left to top right. That's it. If the line goes down too much or too long, you were wrong. You can't argue that the market is wrong because it is your job to predict every move in the market. You had managers in 2008 who lost 50%, and in some cases even as much as 80%. Why? Because they couldn't accept they were wrong. They kept doing the math, and they kept saying they were right. They missed the point. Their math might have been right, but their job isn't to do the math. Their job is to trade what is in front of them. You had guys saying they were right, the market was wrong, and that they had billions of dollars of embedded value in their portfolio. Their job isn't to create billions of dollars of embedded value. Their job is to make the line go from bottom left to top right. Once you understand that is your job as a trader, you have to start protecting the direction of the line. Clark's core advice to traders, do more of what works and less of what doesn't sounds so commonsensical that it may seem almost unnecessary to state. But what is surprising is how many traders fail to adhere to this seemingly obvious principle. Examples abound. Some traders may be good at taking well-thought-out longer-term positions, but then also take short-term trades based on whims in which they have no edge. Other traders have effective systems, but get bored following a computerized approach and override their own system with discretionary decisions that degrade overall performance. There is no shortage of examples of traders deviating from what they do best, whether due to boredom or a sense that if they are good in one type of trade, they should be good at other types of trades as well. Clark's message to traders is that they need to figure out exactly what they are best in and then focus on doing those trades. Many traders may not even be fully aware of where they are making and losing money. One useful exercise traders can do is to analyze their past trades by segmenting winners and losers. Often, such analysis will reveal patterns with certain types of trades being predominant in either the winning or losing categories. If indeed you find that certain types of trades are making money, and other types of trades are losing money, then as Clark advises, do more of what works and less of what doesn't. As a related point, Clark cautions traders against diversifying away from their expertise. Some traders succeed because they are good at doing one type of trade. This success can often encourage traders to expand into other areas in which they may not have any expertise or particular edge. Traders focus almost entirely on where to enter a trade. In reality, the entry size is often more important than the entry price because if the size is too large, a trader will be more likely to exit a good trade on a meaningless adverse price move. The larger the position, the greater the danger that trading decisions will be driven by fear rather than by judgment and experience. According to Clark, one way of knowing your position is too large is if you wake up thinking about it. You also need to be sure that your methodology is consistent with your risk tolerance. For example, if your trade implementation strategy allows for building a three-unit position, 
but your natural risk tolerance is only one unit, you can easily end up panicking out of good positions because you are trading larger than your comfort level. Trading size needs to be kept small enough so that fear does not become the prevailing instinct guiding your judgment. As Clark says, you have to trade within your emotional capacity. Position size is important not only in avoiding trading too large, but also in trading larger when warranted. If everything lines up in a trade, a compelling reason why the trade should work, large potential relative to risk, high confidence in the position, and so on, then the trade should be put on in larger than normal size. Clark cites buying the fiat rights below intrinsic value as an example of such a trade. Traders also need to adjust position size in response to the changing market environment. If the market volatility increases dramatically, traders need to reduce their normal exposure levels correspondingly, or else their risk will dramatically increase. In 2008, Clark reduced his exposure levels by 75% in response to sharply increased volatility. Flexibility is an essential quality to successful trading. It is important not to get attached to an idea and to always be willing to get out of a trade. Clark says that the really good traders are capable of changing their mind in an instant if the price action is inconsistent with their trade hypothesis. They can be absolutely convinced the market is going higher one moment and then be just as sure the market is going down in the next. Virtually all traders experience periods when they are out of sync with the markets. When you are in a losing streak, you can't turn the situation around by trying harder. When trading is going badly, Clark's advice is to get out of everything and take a holiday. Liquidating positions will allow you to regain objectivity. You can't be objective if you are in the market. Taking a physical break will interrupt the negative downward spiral that can develop in a losing streak, as each loss further diminishes confidence. When you restart trading, trade smaller until you have regained confidence. Beware of trades born of euphoria. If you find yourself influenced by the market hysteria to get into a position, watch out. Clark recalls such a situation in Euro Disney where he recognized that his own irrationality in trying to add to his position in a sharply rallying stock was itself a warning signal. Once this realization hit, he switched from bidding to selling, just in time, as soon after the stock reversed into a steep dive. Clark considers staring at the screen all day as being counterproductive. He believes that watching every tick will lead to both selling good positions prematurely and overtrading. He advises traders to find something else, preferable productive, to occupy part of their time to avoid the pitfalls of watching the market too closely. Clark believes traders need to monitor and control their equity to prevent any significant drawdown. Your job as a trader, he says, is to protect the direction of the equity line. Chapter 10 Martin Taylor The Tsar Has No Clothes most hedge fund managers seek to grow assets under management. Martin Taylor chose the reverse course. Ten years after launching his hedge fund with $20 million in seed capital and seeing his firm's assets under management balloon to over $7 billion, Taylor notified his investors that he was closing his fund in 12 months' time. He made this announcement at a time when his hedge fund's net asset value, NAV, was within a hair of its all-time high and after having achieved a track record characterized by consistent outperformance. Taylor had decided that other considerations mattered more than maximizing earnings. He coordinated the closing of his original fund with the opening of a new fund that capped assets at less than one quarter of the previous fund's size. 
A hedge manager voluntarily cutting his assets by more than 75% is a rarity, if not a singular event. Martin Taylor may well have been the best performance record in emerging markets. Between 1995 and early 2000, Taylor managed a long-only fund focused on East European equities. Then, after a five-month hiatus, he launched a hedge fund, Nevsky Fund, in October 2000. Taylor named his fund after Alexander Nevsky, a 13th-century Russian hero who defended his country against outside invaders, and thus was not an objectionable figure to neighboring East European countries. Initially, the hedge fund continued to focus on East European equities, but by 2003, the investment scope broadened to global emerging markets. Across his entire track record, 1995 to 2011, Taylor achieved an average annual compounded net return of over 27%, more than doubling the 12% return of the corresponding emerging markets index. During its 11-year history, Taylor's hedge fund achieved an average annual compounded net return over 22%, more than doubling the corresponding 10% return of the HFRI Emerging Markets Index. Taylor achieved his substantially higher returns while having much smaller drawdowns than both long-only and hedge fund emerging market indexes. He was the only long-only manager to avoid a loss in 1998. He also did extremely well during the 2000-2002 bear market, with his hedge fund up 27% annualized during that period. Taylor's only losing year was 2008. But even then his loss was less than one-third the long-only index decline and 40% of the hedge fund index loss. I interviewed Taylor at his home in a suburb of London, which I reached on a pleasing walk from the train station, passing through the town park on a sunny, breezy Saturday morning in late April. We talked in the living room, sitting beneath a large English impressionistic painting aptly named Harvest Storm. Taylor was dressed very casually in shorts and a t-shirt, ready to depart for the weekend as soon as we finished talking. His family had left for a trip to the grandparents about an hour into our conversation. To allow adequate time for our meeting, Taylor had graciously scheduled to leave later, planning to catch an afternoon train. I had estimated we would need at least three hours. Our conversation lasted more than five hours and could easily have carried on longer, but both Taylor and I were conscious of his delayed departure. One chunk of our conversation regarding Russia proved unusable, as Taylor capped that portion of his narrative by saying, you know you can't use any of that. Russia is not a country where you want to make enemies. When did you first get interested in markets? I came to it quite late, actually, and entirely by chance. I went to university during the booming 1980s. Everyone wanted to get a job in the city because that was where you made a lot of money. But it didn't particularly interest me. I came from a left-wing background. My dad was a labor counselor for 35 years. For my parents, working in the city was anathema. It was all about rich capitalists ripping off the rest of the economy for no net gain to society. I graduated in 1990 in the middle of a pretty nasty recession. With what degree? History. What were your career objectives at the time? I didn't have any thoughts at all. After I graduated, I thought I would try my luck at getting a job in Australia for a year or so, but unbeknownst to me, Australia was in an even worse recession than we were. I came back after six months and ended up finding a job as an accountant at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Did you have any accounting background? No, none at all. 
I'm surprised that they would hire you without any accounting background. I would look at it another way. People who choose to go for an accounting degree at the age of 17 have limited intellectual heft and imagination. If you are 17 and want to be an accountant, how sad is that? High-level auditing is more about opinion than nuts and bolts, so you don't necessarily want someone who just looks at nuts and bolts because they're not going to get the big picture. That is why I think the London accounting firms recruit people from across disciplines rather than just accounting majors. How did you get your education in accounting? The way it works in the UK is different from the way it does in the US. In the UK, for a three-year period, you work full-time and study in the evening, taking exams at the end of each year and qualifying at the end of the period. The only difference, if you have an accounting degree, is that you get an automatic pass on the first-year exam. It doesn't sound like you had any particular desire to be an accountant, though. My thinking was that as an accountant, I would get to audit different businesses, which I thought might give me some ideas of what I wanted to do on a more permanent basis. By pure chance, I was assigned to a group that audited investment banks, stockbrokers, and asset managers. After Thatcher got elected in 1979 and the subsequent Big Bang reforms, the city was thought of as being the icon of achievement in the UK. If you were a AAA student, that is where you would end up. I was expecting to meet all these smart people. My list of companies included a lot of highly regarded financial firms. What both fascinated and appalled me was here were all these people just out of university, making hundreds of thousands of pounds, while I'm making 12,000 pounds, and I thought 99% of them were just plain stupid. They were thick and arrogant, and yet they were all earning these staggering sums of money. I had an epiphany. I thought, hang on, it can't be all that difficult to make money if all these idiots are doing it. As an accounting student, if you interview a trader for an audit, they try to blind you with jargon. They hit you with lots of alphas, deltas, gammas, blah, 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 in the hope that you'll run away in ten minutes because you can't understand anything they say. I hate failure, though, so I would make them take me through it. By doing that, I became fascinated by how markets work. Also, the 1% of traders who were smart were really smart. I've always loved politics and economics, and I enjoyed seeing how they impacted markets. And on top of that, I realized I could actually make a lot of money by being a trader. I went from not being interested in the stock market at all to being fascinated by it. I've always been quite tight and interested in saving my money. At the time, I was saving money to put down as a deposit on a house. It seems bizarre now, but I used that money to start trading options on the FTSE. You started trading without any prior knowledge at all? None whatsoever. At this stage, I had been reading the Financial Times every day for about 18 months. I had also been reading books on markets and traders, including your books. Any books that were influential? Actually, your books were very influential. I still reread them now and then. Why did you decide to trade options on the FTSE index instead of trading stocks? When you work for a large accounting firm, you are very limited in your ability to trade public securities because any firm they are working with is on a restricted list. That is why I never considered buying stocks in individual companies. I didn't want to be speaking to compliance every day. 
The stock index appealed to me because I thought that after following the market for 18 months, I would be quite good at predicting short-term price moves. Why did you choose trading options on the index as opposed to trading the index itself? Because by buying options, the downside is limited and the upside is unlimited. That sounded good to me. On what basis were you making your market trading decisions? It sounds so unbelievably naive now, but basically I did it on how overbought or oversold I thought the market was and what I thought the market direction should be based on my broad feelings on global macro. But of course, although I didn't realize it then, what I knew about global macro at the time was pathetic. How did you judge whether the market was overbought or oversold? Again, it sounds pathetic, but I based it simply on whether the market was up a lot or down a lot. I can't really believe I'm saying this now. My thinking was something like, the market has been down six days in a row. There was some bad economic news, but I think that should be in the price now. I'll buy some. So what happened? I started out with 2,000 pounds, which was a lot of money to me then, and after six months my account was up to 10,000 pounds. I thought I was a bit of a genius. In those days you could buy a house for 70,000 pounds and a big deposit was 20%. So I almost had enough money to get a mortgage. As I made money, I got more and more confident, and I increased the position each time. Ultimately, I put on a position where I was completely wrong. I just held it, held it, held it, and sold it when my account was back down to 2,000 pounds. Over a five-day period, I lost everything that I had made over the prior six months. So you had a mental stop point equivalent to your starting account level? Absolutely. I was not going to allow myself to go into a loss. It's hard to explain, but because I had lost money that I never had in my hand, it didn't feel as bad. But if I had lost my savings, that would have been a catastrophe. It's quite good that you had the discipline to get out, because if you had stayed in, you probably would have lost all your money. Oh, yes, in another two days I would have lost it all. The conclusions I drew from losing all my profits were, first, I didn't know what I was doing, and second, I really wanted to know what I should be doing. I also realized that trying to make money out of big macro moves was a mug's game. I thought that I would have a much better chance of beating the market if I focused on companies, which I obviously couldn't do as long as I stayed in my accounting job. I had always planned to resign once I qualified as an accountant, and that's what I did. I started applying for jobs three months before my three years were up, and I was very lucky to get a job as an analyst for Bearing Asset Management. I joined Bearings as a junior equity analyst in their emerging markets team. I was assigned to the Eastern European Group. At the time, 1994, the Eastern European markets were in their infancy. By the time I joined Bearings, I had been following markets for three years. I had decided 18 months earlier that trading was something that I really wanted to do, because I had finally found something that really excited me. I was extremely motivated and had done lots of study on my own on how to analyze companies. My immediate boss, Rory, had an IQ that was way up there, and I learned a lot from him. His intellect, however, often got in the way of his investing, 
If he was bullish on a stock for ten reasons, he could always think of nine reasons to be bearish, which would cloud his mind to such a degree that he would end up not buying it. Rory was the quintessential Englishman. He was very reserved. Rory's boss, Nancy, on the other hand, was a very extroverted, hard-driving American who was in charge of Bering's Eastern European Investment Group. Here I was, covering these new markets that had just opened up, and my immediate boss was this reserved Englishman. And his boss was a high-energy American whose natural inclination was to give her staff a lot of responsibility and leeway. When I got excited about an idea to buy some company, I would go to Rory for approval, and after talking to him for half an hour, he would find ten reasons not to do the trade. More often than not, the stock would then go up. We all worked in close proximity. What started happening was that Nancy would overhear the conversation and say to Rory, That's rubbish. Why don't you let him do the trade? Within a few months, Rory sort of gave up objecting to my ideas. What this meant was that after six months of joining the firm, I was running a chunk of the portfolio. Several months later, the head of the whole global emerging markets department resigned, and Nancy was promoted to his position. That promotion meant that I was left with Rory to manage the Eastern European Fund. Rory, in the meantime, was spending most of his time on an emerging market venture capital fund, which Nancy was also involved in. So ten months after I had started with Bearings, I had become the main day-to-day -day portfolio manager for the Eastern European Fund. Did it seem odd to you that with less than one year of experience you were in charge of running a fund? No, it didn't. Although I was doing the day-to-day -day portfolio management, I was still managing the fund with Rory. One thing that was very helpful was Rory's resilience. He was completely unflappable. His natural reluctance to take decisive action was a virtue when there was panic in the markets. I was very new to the job. During volatile periods, when it was all going wrong, he would counsel me, just calm down, this is what happens. Working with him allowed me to learn about volatility without making crass errors like selling at the lows or buying at the highs. Rory is the kind of person you would want with you on a battlefield. People would be dropping all around you, and Rory wouldn't have a hair out of place. What happened to your fund during the Russian financial crisis of 1998? I became unbelievably negative on Russia about a year before it blew up, in August 1998. I was so bearish that I took my fund to 40% cash, which was unheard of for a long-only fund. What made you so convinced about the bearish side? The reason Russia didn't blow up earlier was because the money pulled out of Asia during the 1997 Asian crisis had to go somewhere. The money went into Eastern Europe and Latin America and created a mad bull market. But the way that I saw it, what was happening in Asia was the prototype for what would happen in Russia. There was a big disconnect between what I thought and what the market thought. The Asian crisis was caused by large current account deficits which led to large borrowing and ultimately the crisis when the countries couldn't service their debt. When foreigners got scared, not only wouldn't they extend new money, but they started pulling their existing money out. Based on the official numbers, Russia was running a current account surplus, so superficially it seemed quite different from Asia. The true measure of a balance of payments account is what happens to reserves. 
even though Russia supposedly had this huge current account surplus and large capital inflows as people were throwing money at Russia, its reserves were going down instead of up. Russia should have been running a balance of payments surplus of about 10 to 11 percent of GDP each year. But instead, reserves were going down. I thought that the reserves numbers were truthful because the Russian central bank couldn't lie about those without being found out quickly by comparing their data with that of other central banks. Where was the difference? The difference was that during the ineptitude of the Yeltsin government years, theft of company assets was pervasive. The numbers didn't add up. Something was very, very wrong. Wasn't anyone else talking about the discrepancy in the balance of payments numbers? No one at all outside of our team. It was almost surreal. How did you discover it? It wasn't difficult. The facts spoke for themselves. All I had to do was confirm them by matching what I knew about the behavior of individual Russian companies on the ground with the reported capital and trade flow data. I then wrote a lengthy internal paper on it because colleagues thought I had to be exaggerating. So what was the explanation? Russian exports were massively overstated in cash terms. Most of the money from exported goods was being diverted to private Swiss accounts and never showed up in Russia. For example, a Russian mining company might export $100 million of raw materials and report the sale as $50 million. The missing $50 million would go to a private Swiss account, and $40 million of the reported $50 million would go to the same account and show up as a receivable receivables that never quite made their way back into Russia, so only a fraction of reported export sales were actually received as cash payments in Russia. And what is the name for the difference between the $100 million of goods sold and $10 million of cash actually received in Russia? It is capital flight. So what you had was a massive black hole in the capital account. So the owners of the companies were absconding with 90% of what they were selling? Was the theft really of that magnitude? Yes, and across the entire Russian economy. Then you will ask me, why didn't the companies collapse? They didn't collapse because they weren't paying their workers. Well, how did the workers survive if they weren't being paid? A lot of companies ran token systems. The workers would be paid tokens that could only be spent in the company store. It was very much like Victorian England. The workers had no choice because often the company would be the only employer in town. The company owned all the housing, the stores, the local football team, everything. So basically the workers made just enough to pay for food and housing. That's right, and there was no money spent on infrastructure, which deteriorated year after year. How did the owners get the companies in the first place? They got control through the voucher privatization scheme. Workers were given shares or vouchers in their own company. In the two years between the fall of the Soviet Union and the implementation of the voucher privatization program, managements of different companies were siphoning off funds from the money received for exports. They used this money to buy up vouchers from the workers. The workers had no idea what these vouchers were worth. Say, for illustration purposes, each voucher was worth $10, they would offer the workers one dollar for them. If a worker had one hundred vouchers, that would be one hundred dollars. The workers would say, really, you will offer as much as one dollar apiece? 
Remember, the workers were extremely impoverished. After the Soviet Union fell, the whole welfare system broke down. $100 for their book of vouchers was half their annual salary. Weren't there any workers smart enough to hold on to their vouchers? Those who were, let's just say, were encouraged to sell. So coming back to the Russian macro situation, it was clear to me that the same thing that happened to Asia was going to happen to Russia, because Russia was living beyond its means. If you included the unreported massive capital flight, Russia had a huge balance of payments deficit. Russia was 40% of the Eastern European Index benchmark. So I went to zero waiting for Russia, which for a long only fund is an extraordinary thing to do. What was the timing of your switch of the Russian allocation to cash? I started selling our Russian holdings in October 1997. Was there any catalyst for the timing? The Russian equity market had more than tripled during the Asian crisis as investors fleeing Asia shoveled money into a country that was being touted by brokers as a post-communist miracle. Then came one day in October 1997, when there was a rumor about Yeltsin's failing health and the market crashed 23% in a single session. Although I was disgusted by Russia at the time, I had been willing to stay in it as long as it kept going up. I wasn't going to argue with all the idiots who were buying Russia. If I had gotten out and it kept going up, it could have been the end of my career.